Hey, Bizarros. Just a heads up that this episode will include graphic description of violent acts against women. We'll be discussing the terrible crimes of the Whitechapel Killer, a.k.a. Jack the Ripper. So if hearing about these unimaginable acts could cause you anxiety, distress, or trigger you in any way, this may not be the episode for you. We will look forward to you hearing our next episode. Thanks, everyone. Welcome to Bizarro Aficionado. Please, just try and relax. It will only hurt worse if you resist. Welcome back. This is going to be part two to uh, my uh, interview with Josh Hutchins about the women of Whitechapel and the Whitechapel Killer, a.k.a. Jack the Ripper. So um, I'm not going to take up too much of your time with a bunch of blah, blah. I'll just let you get right back into it. And uh, here is part two of the women of Whitechapel. Um, there we so go. we're now we're now at September 27th, 1888, where Martha Tabor, Mary and Nichols and Annie Chapman have all been murdered. And mm-hmm. this letter has come out. You know, people are getting very afraid. Um, and one, one of the interesting and I think really moving um, accounts that came out after Elizabeth Stride's death is there was uh, a man, a doctor, a man named Dr. Thomas Bernardo who lived in Whitechapel and he would go to the different um, DOS houses, you know, give, to give people spiritual guidance. And he went to uh, the one at 32 flower and Dean street. And, uh, and on this particular, on this particular night on September 27th, 1888, um, he was talking to this group of women in the kitchen who were all absolutely terrified and one of the women in the room said, we're all up to no good and no one cares what becomes of us. Mm. Perhaps some of us will be killed next. If anybody had helped us long ago, we would never have come to this. And it was ap- after Elizabeth Stride was killed, the doctor went to see her body in the mortuary and recognized her as one oh, of the wow. women that was there that night. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Elizabeth Stride, like, didn't uh, worked as a sex worker when when she had no other options. She uh, made a lot of other money, like uh, clean cleaning places, cleaning different houses and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, uh, September 29th, 1888, uh, at 11.45 p.m., uh, Elizabeth Stride is seen with a man on the street uh, and... 
the man is overheard to say to Elizabeth Stride, you would say anything but your prayers. Mm. Uh, at an hour later, at 12.45 on now Sunday, September 30th, um, another man named Israel Schwartz also sees Elizabeth Stride with a man. Don't know if it's the same man from right. an hour ago or if it's a different one. Um, but the man noticed Israel Schwartz and and uh, and and the man threw Elizabeth Stride to the ground and then said to Israel Schwartz, uh, Lipsky. Huh. And Lipsky was the name of a Jewish immigrant who had been convicted of murder um, in 1887. Lipsky. So Lipsky was a racial slur against Jews in, mm. the, in the East End. Um, and so Israel Schwartz, who was also Jewish, um, walked off. He was like, I don't want to be in this situation. Right. Uh, and then around, but then around that same time, a little bit later, another man saw Elizabeth Stride again with a man could be the same one could be a different one. Uh, and he heard Elizabeth Stride say, no, not tonight, some other night. Um, and those are the last known words mm. uh, of her because just 15 minutes later at one o'clock, that's when uh, Elizabeth Stride's body was discovered with her throat cut. Um, and she had, her, the throat had just been cut. Right. Um, when she was found. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, they're they're weird little snippets of conversation and and when you talk mm -hmm. about um Lipsky I know at the time there was a pretty high uh anti-semitic view at the time as well as anti-immigrant yeah and uh so I think that was probably something that was sadly common going it on was. there but that makes it a very touchy situation for the police of say the the killer's a Polish Jew, for mm -hmm. instance. What mm -hmm. happens if they're like, oh, well, it's this gentleman. He's an immigrant. He's Jewish. There could be riots mm -hmm. and, yeah. and more outward violence against immigrants and immigrant Jews and the Jews themselves. So that's, that's a scary situation because now you're not only trying to find this killer, but what happens when announcing who the killer could be could cause more crime than not. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and in fact, you know, getting ahead of myself a little bit, but that witness Israel Schwartz, uh, and, and the, and that encounter he had with seeing Elizabeth stride with this man who shouted at him is one of the incidents that has really stood out to a lot of people yeah. um, who investigate this case. Because, again, one of those primary investigators wrote years later that there was one witness who saw Jack the Ripper, but he refused to testify against him in court. Oh, wow. Now, and I didn't some, hear that either. Yeah. Uh, and some and many have speculated that he's, they're speaking of Israel Schwartz, who did not want to testify against the man he saw because the man he saw was also Jewish. Right. Uh, Again, that's all supposition. Sure, um, sure. You know, but it is one of one of those one of those things that that has definitely stood out to folks over the years. Mm. So this was this was Elizabeth Stride, mm -hmm. and tonight, well, that night was special because it was he didn't stop at one. 
Yeah. So mm-hmm. as we most know, he went on to Catherine Eddowes. Mm-hmm. And that was about what, 45 minutes later yes. that uh, Catherine Eddowes was found. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what, Catherine Eddowes' life is another one, again, tragic and and kind of terrible. People die around them. They lose everybody. They fall into this this slump that could happen to any of us. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's frightening how easy it is to fall, you know, and yes. I don't think everyone thinks about it, you know, and if you don't have to think about it, that's wonderful. Good for you, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. but for a lot of people, it's we are all just one happenstance away from losing everything. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, I I live paycheck to paycheck. Oh, like, me too. A lot like most of the people I know. Yeah. You know, so yeah, it really that's one one of the things about about the about looking at this history is, you know, and I think especially looking at the lives of these women that like it it really it really does hit hit home that yeah. like there but for the grace of God you go on, you know. Yeah, like, yeah 100%. It could, it could be anyone. It, anyone. You know. Yeah. I I don't know if I mentioned it to you, but I've mentioned it in the podcast before that I spent time homeless. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's not like you see it coming, you know, you know, it's like, okay, well, this is going poorly and this is going poorly, but it's some just next thing you know, it's like, ah, oh, I don't have anywhere to go. Yeah. And maybe you start on a couch here and a couch there while you're like, All right, I'll, I'll be here like three days. Just, I'll figure it out. And then you don't. <laughs> you don't mm-hmm. figure it out or the despair hits in and there you are. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, that's why it, the the title of your book, you know, and the police will not protect them. That's a, that's a quote from, um, uh, Robert Anderson. Anderson. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, and directly saying, you know, they're, they're sex workers. We're not going to protect them. Yeah. And like that, you know, because I was wondering when I was putting this together, I was wondering what to call it. Because like in the podcast, I called the series The Tale of the Whitechapel Women, which, right. you know, not a great title for a book. <laughs> um, you know, and, but when I was going through it and I and I saw that that um, memo, which is from Robert Anderson's own autobiography, by the way, because um, right. he he came back to London and was put in charge of the investigation really at at the time that we're talking about, you know, after uh, Catherine Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes have been killed and his, and his solution to this problem to, you know, the small, the small amount of women that this affected, by the way, there were 1,200 women who were sex workers in Whitechapel in 1888 at the time this is going on. That's not a small Mm. amount of people. No. Um, but he he said his first his first um it, well he was he was so disgusted that the police <laughs> were trying to protect these women and look out for them of uh, so his first idea was okay if there if there are women walking the streets after dark arrest all of them uh, of and course. then he was like well no that probably won't go over you know too well um so his second his second um method which was carried out was let these women know that if they are on the streets after dark the police will not protect them uh. and that just fills me with such deep rage oh yeah um you know and i think again literally your job 
Yeah, it's literally your job. Um, and I think very sadly yeah. uh, is also very relevant to our current moment. Oh, like when I, it is. When I was first working on this for the podcast, like was when George Floyd was murdered right. and all the, and everything surrounding that. So like, yeah, that, that's why the book is called what it's called. Um, because it's, I, uh, yeah, it's 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 the same as in many of these cases like George Floyd is you have you have the argument of the people on one side going, well, he shouldn't have been a criminal or he shouldn't have been this or he shouldn't have uh -huh. been high. And it's like, that's not the point. It's the point that, you know, one officer or one person at the scene is not judge and jury. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not you're there to protect and serve. Yes, yes, absolutely. Defend your life. But. That's not what this was. Yeah. That, this wasn't a situation where it was at. And in, in the situation for these women, it's like, you're, this is your job. Mm -hmm. You don't just get to, get to protect the peerage in the aristocracy. You got to protect everyone because someone's got to shovel the aristocracy's barn out. And this guy was probably one of their first, first, you know, men looking for service when he's out there but god forbid you know he should have to give anything back mm -hmm. but it, it it's it's crazy how much it is they just didn't care until you know it became big press and big press and they began to look bad right yeah. the optics mm -hmm. changed mm -hmm. so it's like oh i guess we have to do something or you know aberline isn't gonna get to the house of commons mm -hmm. but uh Yes. Yeah, and and that's sort of the thing about like the police during this time, like when this was when this was happening, is that like the the job of the police at this time, like what their sort of public agreement was, like they the main job of the police was to prevent crimes from happening. Yes, it was not their job to solve them. Like crimes were solved by people confessing or by a witness test testifying against them or being literally caught red-handed in the act like this kind of deductive detective work that this case needed they were absolutely unprepared for they had no oh, idea, yeah no idea what to do here mm. yeah yeah it's, it's yeah the, the more things change the more they stay the same mm. yeah and it's <laughs> uh i don't know we just don't seem to learn the big lessons yeah, I, I don't know what it is. You know, it's just like say, if this crime was happening in a in an African American neighborhood in Philly or Baltimore, it's not. It's about what they're going to say there too. Well, it's this yep. poor community. You know, their crime first. Their crime is being poor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's you know what is it, 130, 140 years ish, and still the same mm -hmm. nonsense i don't know i yeah maybe I mean, the next why... generation i because <laughs> yeah, right. we can't seem to fix anything it's getting yeah. worse and that and that's that's why in like towards the end of the book like i put in information about different social justice organizations right that specifically work to help sex workers you know because yeah. sex workers are just as much at risk of violent crime now, as they were in 1888, women who do sex work, especially right. transgender women who do sex work, 
the the amount of women who are murdered every single year because they were doing sex work is still astronomical. Yeah. And and again, illegal. Illegal to profit off what you're allowed to give away for free. So what does it come down to? This is about more controlling of women. Yes. And Mm -hmm. nothing else. That's all it is. It's Mm -hmm. like we will tell you what you can can't do with your body and I, it, it's so frustrating I, i'm not even a female and it's frustrating to me because it's just we yeah. don't learn i, I <laughs> you know it's just I, I don't i don't know i don't know how women can't be outraged you know it's when when with violence against women being was it one in every four will be sexually assaulted I think, yeah. How mm-hmm. is there not massive outrage at this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I just don't. Un- there's so many things I don't understand. This whole, I, I always thought growing up you'd understand more and more, and now I just get more and more confused. I, it's just. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think like on a very basic level, it's about granting every single person the courtesy of recognizing their humanity. Yeah. Um. And I mean, that that's really why I felt like I, I mean, I wrote this story. I wrote this as a podcast and wrote this as a book because I felt I had to because yeah. like, I I just felt like the these are stories that are not told, you know, right. and these women were human beings who had these complex lives. People loved them like Kath, Catherine Eddowes. You're just getting to like Catherine Eddowes was a singer songwriter. Yes. Who had songs published. And no one ever talks about that. No, no. Like, well, people can people can list, you know, every every single cut and mutilation on her body. And if you look at the photographs, you can see it. People talk about that, but no one talks about that stuff. No one talks about the tattoo TC she had on her wrist of her of her first partner. Yeah. You know, like people don't speak of that. No, no, because you know, I, I think inherently. People don't want to care. Mm-hmm. And if they learn too much and if they are reminded about people's humanity, they, they don't know what to do with that. Mm-hmm. We're, we're living in a society that more and more everything we need to know is conveniently being handed to you. Here, read this. Here, be outraged by this. Here, love this. Here, mm-hmm. purchase, consume. Yeah, and it's I don't know. I even the woke aren't woke anymore. I don't think. I I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, it's why I I really love what um, author and historian um, Hanley Rubenhold, who wrote the book The Five, said in an interview for the Guardian newspaper. And I quote it in the book when she talks about like you know, and we we've, we've talked about it in this conversation too that like Jack the she says like Jack the Ripper's become like a monster like like Dracula or Frankenstein's monster, but like right. he was a real person. This happened. It did. These it people did. died. You know, yeah. it's not just um, a tourist trope. Yeah. It's not just like, Oh, I'm going to, it's not just like, Oh, this is a, this is a game. I'm going yeah. to play Sherlock Holmes. Right. You know, like, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. I, people don't understand reality. Hell, it doesn't, they don't even believe reality anymore. So. <laughs> But all right, yeah, Catherine Eddowes. Mm-hmm. So now we're we're well into September now, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, we're in late September now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
So Catherine, Catherine Eddowes, like, as I briefly mentioned, her first partner was Thomas Conway. Um, they had chill, they had three children together. Um, again, again, like all the four women that we've, we've spoken about so far after the children were born, that's when the drinking really kicked into high gear. Um, and she and Thomas Conway, uh, split up. Um, as far as we know, she never saw her children again. Mm. Um, but the, one of the again the one of the wonderful things about Catherine Eddowes is that after after she split up from Thomas Conway got and like got to Whitechapel again she found she found love again um, she fell yeah. in love with a man named uh, John Kelly uh, and she actually start Catherine Eddowes actually started um, calling herself and introducing herself to others as Kate Kelly Aww. you know like like. Because she, it just suggests, I mean, again, of course, we don't know, but like it really suggests to me that you know, she was a person like who had experienced a lot of trauma and pain and, tr- and trouble in her life. But now here was, a new, here was a new start. Here's a chance for a second chance, a, se- a second life, you know? Right. And like that's something that resonates with me very personally as someone who like was married and got divorced and right. then really like, I realized that like everything in my life is wrong. I need like, none of this is what I want. I yeah. have, I have to fix this and did, you know, um, that's not so easy. It's not easy. It's the hardest. Thing oh yeah. Want, you know, um, I know, <laughs> I know it's, um, uh, it's hard to turn everything upside down and just go, I got this. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. But yeah, but that's when, you know, she started right. Like they wrote songs, together and perform mm. them together like they were a singer songwriter yeah. duo. um you know which again which i which i love um you know and like she still she still drank drank a little bit but not often um and uh they uh, going in date wise we're now friday september 28th okay um and there's some inter- and there's some interesting things that were reported um, by people who talked to Catherine Eddowes at this time. And Catherine Eddowes uh, had spoken to a man who worked at one of the infirmaries around around the time um, of late September. Mm-hmm. And Catherine Eddowes said, "I've come back to earn the reward offered for the apprehension of the Whitechapel murderer. I oh, think I know right. him." Um, and again, we only have this man's word right. for that, that she said that. Um, but again, it's one, of, it's one of those interesting things. Um, on September 29th, um, Catherine, uh, Catherine Eddowes and John Kelly were out of money. So John Kelly decided to pawn his boots. Mm, um, that's right. And he, yeah. And he, yeah. And he gave Catherine the pawn ticket to turn in. And she gave the man at the pawn shop, then said her name was Jane Kelly. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and she got money for that. Um, John Kelly didn't have any shoes, but now they had some money. They got a really, they bought some tea and some food, had a really nice breakfast. And then they were out and then they were out of money again. So Catherine Eddowes told uh, her partner, John Kelly, that she was going out to see if she could get some money from one of her daughters and that she would go to her daughter's house and then come back. Mm-hmm. 
and the interesting thing was that uh, Catherine Eder's daughter, Annie, had not too long ago moved away and didn't tell her mother where she moved because she was tired of her mother asking right. her for money. And Catherine Eddowes knew that. She knew that her daughter had moved and she mm -hmm. didn't know where her daughter had gone. Um, so we don't know exact, we don't know exactly what her, per, her plan or purpose. Right. Was, sure. Um, at that time, uh, the next thing we know is that at 8:30 PM on Saturday, September 29th, um, Catherine Eddowes is, uh, drunk in the street. Um, she was found, there were a crowd of people looking at her cause she, you know, kept standing up and falling down again and mm. people were laughing at her. Um, a policeman found her, took her, took her to, um, the police station and, uh, he asked her what her name was and she mumbled nothing. I'm oh. nothing. Oh, and that just fucking kills me. Yeah. Um, but she, she's in the jail, in the jail for, uh, a couple hours. Um, by 12:55 AM, um, she's sobered up. This is five minutes at this point before Elizabeth stride is found dead. Um, and the police officer, uh, sees Catherine Eddowes is awake is, so is sober and asks, Catherine Eddowes her name and Catherine Eddowes says her name is Mary Ann Kelly. Oh. Keeping in mind that she did a pawn ticket for Jane Kelly right. a right. little bit earlier. Um, and she asked the policeman what time it was and the policeman says too late for you to get any more drink and she said I shall get a damn fine hiding when I get home and the policeman mm. asshole says serves you right you have no right to get drunk. Um <laughs> How dare you live? Um, yeah, right. Uh, at one o'clock a.m. on September 30th, this is the exact moment that Elizabeth Stride's body is found. That's when Catherine mm -hmm. Eddowes leaves the police station, and she says to the officer, "All right, good night, old cock," and walks yeah. out. Uh, but she doesn't walk in the direction of home with John Kelly. Um, she walks in the direction of Mitre Square. Right. Um, she is seen there uh, at 1.35 a.m. Well, uh, by a, a cigarette seller, sees a man and a woman. Um, we assume it is Catherine Eddowes that he sees, but we don't know for sure. Right. Um, and 10 minutes later at 1.45, uh, that is when the body of Catherine Eddowes is found. Mm. And they all seem to be around that hour. Between yes. one and like what two thirty? Yeah, there, yeah. There were a take. couple that were were like near near dawn, but mostly yeah, yeah we're in that like middle of the night kind of period. Again, it has that because I think you talk about in the book that there's this, you know, possibility that they're they're coming from somewhere or going to somewhere mm -hmm. when they're passing through these areas, and you know maybe he's closing up a shop, maybe he's opening up a mm -hmm. shop if it's in the dawn. So who knows? But yeah. now this is this is the one of all you know one of them that uh, murders that people I think know. If you ask people about Jack the Ripper, they'll they'll know Mitre Square and yeah. the, the scrolling on the wall, which mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. the the Jewies are not ones to be. See, I already forgot it. I used to know yeah. all this by heart, but 
Yeah, it's well, it it's complicated because there's two different right, uh, two different policemen wrote down ah. um, what they saw. Right. One person wrote it as the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Right. And another policeman recorded the Jews spelled J U W E S are not the men who will be blamed for nothing. Um, and we don't know exactly yeah. what it said because. Sir Charles Warren, who is the head of the London's Metropolitan Police, ordered that uh, writing in chalk erased before the sun came up, even though there were photographers there ready to photograph it as soon as there right. was light. Um, but again, like you brought up a little bit earlier, you know, there was a lot, there was a huge amount of anti-Semitism in, White, in Whitechapel, um, and that that is also part of the equation with the police. Sure. You know, to catch this person but not trying to start start you know a persecute a persecution of the immigrant jewish population right as well right. um you know it's hard to say if it was the right thing to do or not i mean of course like you know for selfish reasons like forensically be like oh it'd be great to have that you know but also like i but i can i can see his reasoning too yeah um, below the reason why that writing um is such part of this case is because uh, a piece of Catherine Eddowes apron that had been cut off by the killer was found underneath of it. And the killer had used it to wipe his hands, which were covered mm. in blood and fecal matter. Right. Uh, because he, this, because this is the case where um, he mutilated Catherine Eddowes body. So yeah. horrifically, you can w see the photographs if you want, be careful. You can and see yeah. it. Um, like in her intent, like her, there are just these terrible like cuts to her face, just cruelty, and yeah. uh, her intestines were thrown over her shoulder, um, you know. Uh, but and then this, you know, piece of her apron was found underneath this graffiti written in chalk, and you know, people have wondered wondered ever since like was this written by the killer or was it a coincidence that the killer threw the apron in that particular spot right did the killer see that and was like oh this will be a good place we don't know um but the i, I don't know i i don't know i'm 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 kind of of the mind that the killer did not write it um yeah I don't, it seems no. out of character for this it does person. Um, but again, we don't know. Um, but the thing, the thing that is really important forensically about this is that um, going from Mitre Square, where Catherine Eddowes' body was found, to Golston Street, which is where the graffiti and the piece of apron was found, the killer's going back into Whitechapel. Um, right. You know, suggesting he's going back home. Home, or going sure. To work, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's, it's awful. It's, it's absolutely awful, and it's just and again at this point, I don't think they have anything too much to go on. They don't, no. And uh, you know, it's just a collection of random killings, and I, I'm not even sure they're all motivated to do anything, even as of Catherine Eddowes yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's um after the death of Catherine Ed after the death of Catherine Eddowes, like that's when like everyone is is hyper, hyper terrified. Right. Um 
uh, and there's an interesting um, report in one of the newspapers, uh, The Star, um, where someone inter uh, interviewed um, sex workers in Whitechapel. And uh, just this brief snippet of the article says, uh, others stood in the glare of a street lamp or huddled in doorways, all discussing the murders. He'll be coming through the houses and pulling us out of our beds next, says one, which is very eerie. Yeah. Because that's again, a portent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and then in on October 16th is when George Lusk, who is the president of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, um, which right. was basically the neighborhood watch that was set up because these murders were happening since the police were useless. Um, right. You know, George Lusk gets this package um, with a letter and a box that has a human kidney in it um, that's preserved in wine. Um, it's half of a human kidney, excuse me. And uh, when it was examined, uh, they found that the kidney was from a woman who was suffering from Bright's disease, which is mm -hmm. a disease Catherine Eddowes did have, uh, and that it like it did not it wasn't like a medical student's prank as a lot of people kind of think it is because it had never been preserved in like formalin or anything like that it was preserved right. in wine. Um and the letter is the from hell letter, um which is the one letter that a lot of people think may have actually been written by the killer. Oh um, yeah. I mean it, just comparing the handwritings of the two. Mm -hmm. and the spelling. Uh, and the yeah. right, right that this this makes more sense that this is real it isn't this fancy sherlock holmes-esque mm -hmm. you know educated person it's someone from right it's got to be someone right here in Whitechapel, and they're insane yes but uh yeah so now they they get the from hell letter how does that change things i mean I think, I think the hue, the, I mean, as far as the investigation goes, it didn't really change much. Right. Um, but in looking, in looking at it now, in hindsight and what we know, what we know about, you know, criminal methodology and things, the, one of the huge things, other than the fact that it was sent with a kidney, um, that was probably likely from Catherine Eddowes. We, obviously, we don't know for sure. It was destroyed in the bombings in World War II, that kidney. Um, right. So we can't examine it. But the interest, the really, inter I mean, the really interesting thing about the From Hell letter, aside from the fact that it's terrifying, um, yeah. is that it's signed, Catch Me When You Can, Mr. Lusk. And this is, you know, this is way, way after all these, the Dear Boss letter where Jack right. comes in and the Saucy Jackie Oh, yes. Is another one that came. So like Jack, all every single news story is Jack the Ripper, Jack the Ripper, Jack the Ripper. And the person who sends this letter with this body part does not use that name. Right. Um, which many, many investigators and historians think is very, very significant um, and a, a, a big sort of nod to it, perhaps it being actually from the murderer. Right. So then things get kind of weird because, as you were saying, Catherine Eddowes is going into the pawn shop and giving her name as Mary Jane Kelly. Mm -hmm. And then who do we have next? 
but Mary Jane Kelly. Yeah, um, it's really interesting. Uh, and before I talk, before I, you know, get into Mar- Mary Kelly herself, um, just the the coincidence of that. Uh, so Mary Jane Kelly lived in and was murdered in uh, a room at 13 Miller's Court, uh, mm-hmm. which was actually the back room of 26 Dorset Street. Oh. Uh, and uh, 26 Dorset Street behind a thin, the back flimsy partition of Mary Jane Kelly's room was a storage room uh, that was basically used as... Uh, like an unofficial shelter um, mm-hmm. when men, women in Whitechapel couldn't afford a bed for the night, had nowhere else to go. That's where they would sleep. Um, Catherine Eddowes is known to have used that room. Oh, wow. Um, r- right on the other side of the wall from where yeah. Dane Kelly lived. So they um, undoubtedly had to know each other. It, it It's very, very likely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it, that's one of those things that makes you wonder, like about like did did the you know did these women all know each other? You know, of course, some uh, some fictional uh, versions of this story have them all definitely knowing each other and being sure. friends. You know, but they're probably aware of one another. But you know, Catherine Eddowes, the connection between Catherine Eddowes and Mary Jane Kelly, just by um, how how close they were in proximity physically like and the fact yeah. that Catherine Eddowes used the aliases Jane Kelly and Mary Ann Kelly right it, it, that, that's that's a lot of coincidence you know yeah <laughs> for sure yeah for sure yeah. that it can't just be she just made that up there had to be right. a reason for it yes i think so mhm yeah mary and uh, mary jane kelly is really interesting. Um, she is in so many ways the most elusive of them mm-hmm. all um, because the only the only records that we know of her life are from what she herself told other people. Right. Um, so we don't know, you know, with with every with all the others, like even Martha Tabram, who we know you know, comparatively little about, you know, but there are with all the others, you know, actual historical records and do- and documents, you know, um, yeah. that give us information about them. But with Mary Jane Kelly, it's, it's all based on what, what she told people and then what they told the press and the police. Right. You know, um, but, and it's interesting because Mary Jane Kelly, she's described almost as looking totally different, like depending on who is speaking about her. Like mm-hmm. some people said she had red hair or blonde or blonde hair, her eye, like, or different color eyes, you know? Um, yeah. And again, we don't have like everyone except Annie Chapman. There's no photographs of her when she's alive. Um, but from what Mary Jane Kelly said is that she was uh, born in Ireland in Limerick. Um, we don't know if that's the town or the County. Uh, sure. She didn't specify. Uh, born around 1863. Um, and when she was about 16 years old, she got married. Um, and her husband, very, very tragically, uh, 
about two or three years after the marriage was killed in a mine explosion. He was a, mm. he was a mine, he was a miner and uh, exploded and he died. So she's like 18 or 19 and she's a widow now. So what does she do? Um, and, uh, according to Mary, she then went to, uh, to Wales to live with her cousin. And she said it was her cousin, uh, who introduced Mary to sex work. As a, as a way of making money, as a way of surviving. Right. Um, and Mary Jane Kelly moved to from Wales to London in 1884. So this is four years before the Whitechapel murders. And what, may, what Mary Jane Kelly is different in several ways. One, all the other five women that we've talked about were all in their 40s. Um, Mary Jane Kelly was 25 when she died. Um, and... When she came to London, she actually, I mean, again, this is from her own words. Right. But that she, she worked in like a West, a high class West End brothel, hmm. like where, you know, she described like wearing beautiful gowns and riding around the city in a coach. Right. Um, like she, she was a very, very high, high class escort. Right. You know, as we would say now. Um, and that she had gone, accepted an offer to go with a client to live with him in mm. France, like uh, basically as his like mistress. Right. Um, but she didn't. But then she didn't stay in France long. She came running back to Whitechapel. Um, so, you know, something went wrong. Um, and a lot of people, a lot of people think now that like she was a victim of sex trafficking, which oh. was which was as it is still was huge was huge in victor in the victorian age right and all the time still does um but she somehow managed to escape but she went back and the wet and the west end brothel wouldn't let wouldn't let her back um so then she goes to the east end she goes to Whitechapel. so she goes from being this, being a high class escort, having a pretty like great, uh, secure life, you know, right. like experiencing fine things to the abyss of the East end. Yeah. Um, and she said, she didn't say much about her family. Um, she said that her parents had discarded her is the quote that oh, her wow. boyfriend, um, Joseph Barnett used to describe it. Um, but it was known that she did sometimes receive letters from Ireland that uh, her boyfriend thought were from her mother, uh, but we don't know. Um, there's one instance where Mary Jane Kelly's father came to Whitechapel looking for her and huh. she hid for days until wow. he left. Again, we don't know why, but there's clearly not a good home life. Yeah. Um, as is the case with them all. Um, but Mary Jane Kelly and Joseph Barnett um, got together. Um, and, it, you know, uh, it was kind of, kind of a meet cute uh, in, a, in a way. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, they met on uh, April 8, 1887, which was Good Friday. Um, Joseph Barnett was a fruit seller in the market. Um, they met that day, took Mary out for a drink, um, and they said, let's meet the following day. Next day on their second date, they're like, let's live, let's live together. Huh, um, and of course. So they did. Um, and they lived at 13 Miller's Court. Uh, and Mary Jane Kelly, 
did was was known to drink um and it was said that like she she didn't drink all the time um but when she did drink she got very loud and she got kind and she could become very aggressive um which is why people sometimes called her Dark Mary or Black Mary. Hmm. Um, again, another parallel with Annie Chapman being right. Dark Annie. Um, and uh, Joseph Barnett and Mary Jane Kelly event- eventually um, split up, be- um, partially because because of money issues, partially because of the drinking, and also because. Mary Jane Kelly um, would sometimes let her friends, who were also sex workers, stay in the room when they had nowhere oh, right. else to go. And Joseph Barnett didn't didn't like having them around, and he didn't like Mary doing sex work. Um, and but and one thing we do know is that Mary Jane Kelly, like most women uh, of this time in class, w- was never never taught to read. Um, hmm. but she had her boyfriend, Joseph Barnett, read her all the newspaper coverage of the Whitechapel murders uh, huh. every day while they were happening. Um, so she was very well aware of what was going on. Um, and Joseph Barnett said that she, she was incredibly frightened, um, by, by these killings that were happening. Um, so that really take, that takes us to, November 8th, 1888, which is a Thursday. Um, and friend of Mary Jane Kelly's Lizzie Albrook went to visit her at 13 Miller's court. Mm-hmm. Lizzie Albrook later talks, revealed what their last conversation was like. Uh, and Lizzie Albrook at the inquest said, I knew Mary Jane Kelly very well as we were near neighbors about the last thing she said to me was, Whatever you do, don't you do wrong and turn out as I did. She had often spoken to me in this way and warned me against going on the street as she had done. She told me, too, that she was heartily sick of the life she was leading and wished she had money enough to go back to Ireland where her people lived. I do not believe she would have gone out as she did if she had not been obliged to do so to keep herself from starvation. Mm. So again, like, this is literally on the last night of her life she yeah. is trying to make plans like maybe i can get some money together maybe i can go back home to ireland and get away from all this and start right. over again. um and uh 11:45 p.m. uh mary jane kelly uh is seen by a neighbor and says good night i'm going i'm going i'm going to have a song uh and then for the next uh hour or so uh the neighbor hears Mary Jane Kelly singing uh a song an old traditional folk song called a violet from mother's grave mm-hmm. it's all about um the the singers has lost everyone in their family and they're mm-hmm. all alone now but like they, she has a violet from her mother's grave to remember them by wow. um yeah uh at two o'clock a.m., uh, Mary Jane Kelly has gone out. Has gone out again. Uh, she meets a neighbor named George Hutchinson in the street and asks um, if he can lend her some money. He says he doesn't have any, and she says, "Well, I must. I have to go find some." Um, George Hutchinson said that she wasn't drunk at this point or did right. not appear to be. 
And he watched Mary Jane Kelly then approach a man who had been lingering in the street. And they talked, and Mary and the man talked for a while. George Hutchinson couldn't hear what they said. Um, Mary and the man both laughed, and he heard Mary say, All right. And then George Hutchinson saw the man put his arm around Mary Kelly's shoulders, and the man said, You will be all right for what I have told you. Hmm. Uh, and then they started walking back to Miller's Court, and Mary said, All right, my dear, come along. You'll be comfortable. Oh, I lost my handkerchief. And huh. then the man gave Mary Kelly his own handkerchief, and it was red, mm. which is, again, one of those details like you could right. make up. Uh, and Mary and the man go into that room at 30, at 13 Miller's Court. And George Hutchinson kind of was weirded out by watching this interaction. He just had the sense that something might be wrong. So right. he actually stood in the street and watched Miller's Court for about an hour until about 3 o'clock a.m. Um, and he didn't hear anything happen. So he then, you know, went went on his way. Um at 3.30 a.m., so uh, a half hour after George Hutchinson leaves the street, two neighbors living in the building uh, hear a woman cry out murder. They both mm. basically roll over and go to sleep um, because... As one know, does. As, as one yeah. does, um, you know. Uh, and it's at 5.45 that a neighbor hears what she described as a man's footsteps leaving mm. Miller's court. Um, so again, three 30 here, a woman crying out murder, five 45, a man leaves. And it's at 10 30 that, um, the landlord sent his assistant to collect rent from Mary Jane Kelly and, uh, looked through the window and saw what was left of her. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, this one he had all the time he wanted. Mm-hmm. And it's, yep. as I think everyone knows, you know, that, that this one was the the pentultimate, at least at this point, of uh, of savagery. Mm-hmm. And, it, yeah, she's all but dissected down to the bone. Yeah. And uh, then it kind of... If one thing that kind of ends there mm-hmm. or does it, you know, it's yeah. And it's interesting. Cause like based on like the evidence that we have with Mary Jane Kelly, once whoever this man was, when she took him into the room, she, un- she took off her clothes, folded them, laid them neatly on a chair. She went to bed in her nightgown, mm-hmm. um, on the side of the bed that was closest to the wall, um, which suggests that whoever this man was, it was either someone that she knew or someone that she did not feel threatened by. Um, Right. It was while, while in the bed that her throat was cut. Uh, and then the mutilation started and, uh, we think that, the killer burned clothing in the fire so he'd have light to do, right. do the mutilation and because the fire had burned so hot that the metal of the pot had actually start had started to melt. Oh, wow. Um, and the thing that the everyone who saw her body 
really was haunted by was that her was her eyes. Yeah. Um, that her eyes were wide open, and it was actually only by her eyes and by one of her ears that Joseph Barnett identified her because <sighs> there's literally nothing left. Not right. Um, and friend, the killer took her heart. That was the right. only body part that was missing from her was her heart. And then that never turns up, right? No. Yeah. No, none of none of the organs were ever found. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So now you know we we have this massive one, and this has got to really be the penultimate. And you would think, you know, did things change now? Now you know, other mm-hmm. than a media circus. Did the investigation really change much? Mm. I mean, it's really after after this. I mean, that the government really started getting involved. Right. right? It's after it's after the murder of Mary Jane Kelly on November 9th. You know, remembering that like Martha Tavram's killed on August seventh, Mary Jane Kelly's killed on November 9th. That's six women within these these months, and Queen Victoria actually sent a message to Scotland Yard and she she wrote this new most ghastly murder shows the absolute necessity for some very decided action all these streets must be lit and our detectives improved they are not mm. what they should be uh and she's absolutely right um but it's such a contrast from like from the first couple murders you know that you know were small small funerals like thousands yeah hundreds of thousands came to Mary Jane Kelly's funeral. Oh, wow. They lined, they lined the streets to touch her coffin Mm -hmm. as it went, as it went past, like women were weeping and men removed their hats when she went by like their, her funeral was a huge event and a huge outpouring of mourning. Um, Yeah. You know, and it really, as, as is so often still the case, like it really took as like all these horrific events to happen. It took these six women, at least these six women being brutally murdered in the prime of their lives to make people want to do yeah. something about it. You know, I, why is that always the way that more and more people have to die before people are like, oh, I guess we got to do something. Yep. Yeah, it's just, again, because of their profession or the lack thereof. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's, I don't know. So I guess that yeah. brings us to who. Mm-hmm. And I know mm-hmm. I know if you, if you Google who is Jack the Ripper, <laughs> <laughs> you get the prevailing theory, which is Aaron Kaminsky. Right. So mm-hmm. who was Aaron? Okay, so... This is a fun rabbit hole. It, is, uh, it so, most certainly is. Yeah. So in in the book in the book itself, I don't I don't talk about it all right. from any theories as to as to who did it, and that's on purpose. Um, right. But I do in the book suggest like if you want to go down that road, I start by looking at what those three primary investigators of this case wrote about what they thought they knew. Um, yeah. Because what's interesting is that it wasn't very long after Mary Jane Kelly's murder that the huge police presence that had been set up in Whitechapel was drastically reduced. Right. Uh, Which, again, 
we don't know why, but has suggested to a lot of scholars and historians that it was reduced because they felt that they knew who the killer was, Yeah, but they couldn't, they didn't have the evidence to prosecute him, but they knew that he was in a place where he would not be able to harm anyone else. Right. Perhaps. Um, and uh, several of those prime, two of those primary investigators did write a couple decades later um, uh, about a little bit about um, their thoughts at that time. Uh, and one of the named suspects that they mention uh, is a man named Aaron Kosminski, right. um, who who was who was a Polish Jew um, who had uh, who was known to be mentally ill, had some violent tendencies. And that uh, this Aaron Kosminski was um, put in an asylum shortly after Mary Jane Kelly was killed, um, which has led a lot a lot of people to suspect him. The the uh, sort of a, uh, an issue with him is that there are records of of his behavior in the asylum, and his behavior does not suggest this killer um right eric kosminski was actually very docile mm -hmm. uh he uh, I, I and again we don't know what like his diagnosis would be into in today's terms but his sure. main things like he he really dissociated from reality he um refused to eat food um that people gave him like he was found like eating food trash out of the gutters um and he he uh, pra constantly practice self abuse, as they called it back in right. the day, because um, of course that makes you crazy. Um, <laughs> of course, in the Victorian age, um, you know. Uh, and he, but other than that, he was very peaceful, which does not really line up with the kind of killer that this was. Right. Um, but there is another interesting avenue. Um, with that in that there uh was another uh polish jew in Whitechapel at this time whose name was nathan kaminsky yes uh who also who also was very violent uh and who short uh shortly i think i can't remember the exact year but around but sort of near the time of the Whitechapel murders starting, Nathan Kaminsky kind of vanishes from the historical record. And at the same time, Nathan Kaminsky vanishes. Records start talking about a man, a violently insane Jewish man named David Cohen. Cohen, right. He was also committed to an asylum very soon after Mary Jane Kelly was murdered. Um, and who was extremely violent had to almost constantly be kept in a straitjacket because he would attack people that sounds um, more like it and it does and uh it makes people think that they miss because again these are white these are white european englishmen you know these all these immigrant jews are like oh these these names so it, right. it's conceivable that they mistook kaminsky for kosminsky sure a similar man uh but why Nathan Kaminsky perhaps became David Cohen is because uh, 
you know, a lot like, you know, the United States did at, uh, at Ellis oh, Island. Right. You know, would immigrate if it's an if it's a name that is sounds foreign to them or they don't know yeah. how to spell it. They'll put another name. And David Cohen was basically the John Smith. For right. Ugh, um, of course. So that that I think would be an is an extremely interesting possibility. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Through. Especially if he's bringing Broad in, he's extremely violent. He has mm-hmm. to be sedated or subdued or both. And there's yeah. like, what well, I don't, I, David Cohen. There, I don't. <laughs> we don't know his name. Yeah. Whatever it is for now. Right. And there it is. But so there's also another um, kind of prevailing. I don't know if it's quite prevailing yet, or it could be new, or. Mm-hmm. But the idea that David Cross, uh, aka, help me with his last name, uh, Charles Allen Lechmere. Yeah. Charles Allen Lechmere. That's mm-hmm. right. Uh, and he was the first person he found. Wasn't Catherine? Marion Nichols. Nichols, right? Polly Nichols. Mm-hmm. That m- maybe he just didn't find her, and that he had been there the whole time. Yeah, and and this this is a relatively uh, in in terms of like the pantheon of Jack the Ripper theories, yeah. this is a relatively relatively new one. Um, and and like I like I said earlier when I was review when I was reviewing this book to prepare for the interview, like it it stuck out to me that like Charles Cross is discovered with this body minutes after she's killed, um, right in this street where there's no hiding places. Like if you're walking down the street, everyone, everyone can see you. Um, and it just reading, reading that again in my own text, it was, I was like, that's odd. And I was like, if you like, if this hat, if this crime like happened today, that man would be pr- a prime suspect. Oh like, yeah. If you were found standing over a body minutes after the murders happened with an, nowhere to go um you know and oh god i'm so ashamed i can't remember the gentleman's name now um but there's one particular researcher who really latched on to this and i only i literally only found went down this rabbit hole like two days ago right um you know because i read this book and then like you know you once you get involved in this case it just oh yeah it gets into your heart and like you just there's you can get lost in it. Um, but uh, there's this one one guy who started looking into it uh, and discovered that when the inquest into uh, Marianne Nichols' murder was happening, uh, Robert Paul, who was the second man on the scene at Marianne Nichols, testified that this other man uh, had been there when the body was found. So mm-hmm. on the second day... Charles Charles Cross comes to testify. Weird that he didn't come forward right um, before that. Maybe, maybe I don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm trying try to be objective. Uh, of course. But he gave his name at the inquest as Charles Cro- Charles Allen Cross, mm-hmm. uh, and he gave his his address, uh, the house where he lived, and then gave his testimony um, as it has been repeat repeated down through the records through the ages um but this scholar did some started looking through the records and looked at uh 
the address that Charles Cross had given, and there was no Charles Cross living at that address. Oh, interesting. And moreover, in the census records, there was no Charles Cross living in Whitechapel at hmm. that time. But the person that was living at that address was a man named Charles Allen Lechmere. Huh. And Charles Allen Lechmere's stepfather's last name was Cross. Huh. Um, so Char- why did Charles Allen Lechmere lie about his name when he testified? You yeah. Know, that's an, in, an interesting thing. Um, and what the researcher discovered is that all of the murders except for Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes were from Martha Tabram onward. Right. We're on two of the most direct paths that Charles Allen Lechmere would walk to work in the early hours of the morning. Hmm. Uh, and that uh, the, you know, Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes have always kind of stood out to people because they're the they're the only two that are killed, you know, south of Whitechapel Road, you know, um, closer to the city of London. And people have always wondered why the killer would venture out of that comfort zone that he had established. Right. Uh, and Charles Allen Lechmere had grown up in that neighborhood oh. where Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes were killed. And even more than that, his mother still lived there huh. very, very near where Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes were killed. Um, so there's, and and there's a there's a lot more there's a lot more to it as for as far as like it, you know emotion emotional um, reasons for his potential motivation for doing these crimes right into now, um, but there's a great documentary you can watch it on YouTube um, called Jack the Ripper the Missing Evidence that goes mm-hmm. into this, um, and I don't know it's it's very interesting to me um, it it kind of it makes a lot of sense in ways right. that are more concrete than other theories I've heard. Um, and there, ha- there, was, there has been a book that I think was just released a year ago uh, by this researcher. I think it's called Cutting Point. I'll have to look it up. Um, where he you know, really goes in depth with his research um, into postulating that Charles Allen Lechmere was Jack the Ripper. And also suggesting that Charles Allen Lechmere was also responsible for what are known as the Thames Torso murders, right? Um, which, hap- which happened a little bit later. Um, have not, I haven't read the book yet, um, but I definitely will. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued by it. The, the torso murders were just brutal. So I mean, after what, what was done to, um, to uh, the final victim, mm-hmm. I. Where could it have gone but what was done to these where they're so hacked up, you know, that they're finding, you know, I, at, on Monday they find an arm, on Tuesday a leg, mm-hmm. on Thursday it's the upper chest. I mean, even the torsos are butchered up. Yeah. So it, that almost seems to me as a probable escalation if it's going to continue. Now, you yeah, know, I, I think the David Cohen one has its merits as mm-hmm. well. You know, here he is. He's a Polish Jew. The sentiment for 
both immigrant and Jew, like I said, was really high. So the you know the police have to be like, well, he gets put into an asylum by his family. We can make sure he doesn't get out. In the end, it was just a bunch of prostitutes. It's done, mm-hmm. you know, and be done with it. But Cross is intriguing. Yeah, it, it is. Um, you know, because that's always been my my sort of hang up. You know, about about when I you know trying trying to think about you know who who could have done this. Why did it stop? You know, because serial killers don't usually just stop. No. Like, okay, I'm good. Sometimes that happens, but it's yeah. very rare. Like right. serial, serial killers usually do not de-escalate. Um, they stop because you know, either they're caught for the murders, they're put in jail for another unrelated crime, or they or they're incapacitated somehow, or they die. Um, and it's interesting looking at the torso murders as as people have before before the Lechmere theory right. as being a nat- as you said kind of a natural escalation of yeah. what would come next. You know. Yeah. I mean, like, like you say in the book, in the end, we'll probably, we'll never know. There'll never be anything, you know, case closed type of situation with this. But I, I think we get closer and closer to a more reality of the type of person it could be. We're getting away from the, you know, the, the like you said, Lewis Carroll, James Maybrick, you know, Prince yeah. Albert Victor. And like, come on. <laughs> you know, let's come back down to earth, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, we'll never know. But it's, I, I find it a far more interesting crime to study now that we know more about the victims. That they're not just these. Oh, it's just her. It's just her. You know, mm-hmm. it's just. Oh, this is the one that was just. They took the kidney from. This is the one that was completely mutilated. No, man, they they were out there struggling, and it's not a crime to to struggle. It's not a crime mm-hmm. to hit rock bottom. But uh, you know, like yeah. like we've been saying, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's a really important thing, and that and that's why I I really wanted to write this book and put all this together, you know, because it their stories really did haunt me, you know, because in fi- in researching them, like, because we'll, we'll never really know who Jack the Ripper was. Right. You know, we might get sure. close to knowing. It's never going to be proven. But you can know who these women were. It's there. It is there in the historical record. It's been there all this time. for And, pe- and it, you should look at it. You know, if you're going to look, if you are going to look at this case and, yeah. you know, by all means, like enjoy the theorizing and the sure. detective work. But you start with these women. Women. You start with yes. Yes. A hundred percent. Because if, if you're, if your investigation can't start with the compassion for the victims, you're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. And you got to know the victims to know the killer. Mm-hmm. I, and it's uh yeah, it's a strange and horrible and morbid case, but it's only because it was the first, you know, yeah. the first really popularized uh, serial killer mm-hmm. out there. And um, yeah, we'll never know, but listeners definitely should check out, read into Kaminsky, David Cohen. There's a lot of compelling 
things there, and definitely about David Cross, which is less known about, but I think you're going to see not David Cross. It was Charles Cross. Charles, Charles Cross. Charles yeah, Cross. Yeah. That there's a. There, I think you're going to find a lot more now. How much can be discovered, but I don't know. But I think there's more to be found there. And yeah, uh, and honestly, okay. Oh no, go ahead, Josh. Yeah, and honestly, like the the place I would recommend you start, like if you're starting with the internet, Facebook.org is the place. To okay. Go. Um, that site that site has existed pretty much since the internet came into existence, mm-hmm. and literally every piece of evidence and documentation, every you know official report, every newspaper report, everything is on that web. Everything is on that website, along with like thousands and thousands of pages of different theories and port and portraits of the victims. Um, historical information about Whitechapel and of the period. Like it, it is an incredible, incredible resource. Um, I yeah, highly I'll, recommend it. I'll put that in the show notes as well. And Josh, what do you have to plug? You have a new book coming out. Well, you're working on <laughs> and it needs to be done soon. If I remember correctly. <laughs> yes. Um, so for, for folks who may have uh, listened when I was on last time, my first book was haunted history of Delaware, um, which came out July of 2021. Uh, and I am currently one month away from uh, my deadline for uh, haunted history of Philadelphia. Um, no, no pressure. Out later this year, definitely in time for Halloween. Yeah. Um, and once once the haunted history of Philadelphia book is out there, um, I really do want to try and find a home, find a home for this book for the police will not protect them. Uh, so I really yes. do believe in it. Um, but if you want, if you uh, want to read it, um, I am selling PDF copies cool. of it. Um, you can go to my website, joshhitchens.com, uh, and email and send me an email. Um, I'm a- I'm asking uh, ten dollars for it, um, paid through Venmo. Um, but I would love love for people to read it. Love love to get it out there. Yeah. Uh, Ninety five page PDF, and it is illustrated with thirty photographs from the period. Um, again, no post mortem photographs. All right. Okay. It's it's gonna suck you right in. You're gonna read this in a day. It's it's so good. <laughs> it is so good. But Josh, thank you so much for coming on. I've kept you on here all night again. <laughs> love it. I love it. It's always great talking to you. And uh, we're we're gonna we'll have you back for the new book. And uh, I believe you've done a little bit of research on yet another serial killer. Mm, I had well, wh- which one? <laughs> <laughs> um, um, oh my gosh, I'm gonna forget his name now. Because you did a one man play, uh, yeah, Dahmer. I've yeah, I've done him. I I've. I wrote, I've written and have performed several times a, a play about Jeff Dahmer called The Confession of Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, so I can. Yeah. I've I've been doing. I spent a decade researching and writing that, and I yeah. started performing it in uh, 2013. I think uh, the most recent time I did it was 2017. Um, but I I've read and watched literally everything that is publicly available about him. Um, yeah. So if you ever want to have me on to talk about him? Yeah, yeah, we will definitely do that. And I believe yeah. you have a uh, online talk coming up. Oh too, right? yes, 
I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, thank you for reminding me. Uh, it'll <laughs> You're be welcome. On my we- it'll be on my website, too. Uh, but yes, on March 2nd, um, I'm going to be doing a virtual um, event through uh, a book, a wonderful independent bookstore in Philadelphia called A Novel Idea. Um, and it's going to be, I'm doing a virtual reading of several uh, stories from Haunted History of Delaware with uh, Q&A afterwards. And it is online on Zoom. Um, it's a five dollar suggested donation. Um, but yeah, that's coming up on March the 2nd. That's exciting. I know I got my ticket. Oh, awesome. <laughs> so I can't wait. But Josh, thank you again for everything. And hang around a bit after we hang up here and uh, we'll talk a little bit more. Everyone else, we'll be right back. Guys here, do you enjoy Bizarro Aficionado and would like to help out the show? No, don't worry. I'm not asking you for a dime. Just leave a comment, subscribe, or follow the show so you get each episode as it's uploaded. Comments really help the show, and subscriptions help it move up in the ranks among the other 4 million shows in the world. So be a gem, and leave a comment, or like, or follow, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, everyone. Hey everyone, welcome back. Thank you so much for tuning in to not one, but part two of my interview with Joss Hitchin. And I thought that was a really incredible ride, really cool things that I didn't know about them. And we always hear about the killers and we never hear about the victims. So I thought it was a really great show. I had a good time. I hope you did too. Again, like I said in the little post before this, if you really like the show and want to help out, please subscribe. Please download. That really helps the show out. Uh, Make sure you check out our YouTube channel, uh, wherever you get your podcast from, if you're tired of that. Uh, All the shows are on YouTube as well, and uh, there will be more video content coming uh, this spring and summer. So keep an eye out there. Otherwise, thanks everyone for listening. I'm Gaz, and stay bizarro.